You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Hello and welcome to October's JNNP podcast. In this edition, JNNP editor Matthew Kiernan talks to Steve Simpson about how his meta-analysis supports a positive association between multiple sclerosis prevalence and latitude. Uh, in the absence of adjustment for HLA in the Italian region, we actually have a very significant inverse gradient. But when you take into account the HLA distributions, uh, it actually reverses that, so it becomes relatively non-significant, but a positive gradient. And Parkinson's disease. As we look to move from symptom-alleviating therapies to those that modify the underlying course, there's a need to better understand the natural progression of the disease separating out simple symptomatic effects from real disease-modifying effects is difficult. It's only through running studies like this that we can begin to get an idea of what sort of markers, what sort of endpoints we should be looking at. But first up, here's Matthew on MS and Latitude. So it's a great, great pleasure to welcome everyone to this month's JNMP podcast. And tonight we're joined by Steve Simpson, who with his colleagues from the Menzies Research Institute in Tasmania and the University of Tasmania, is going to tell us about his findings in his study, Latitude is significantly associated with the prevalence of multiple sclerosis. So welcome, Steve. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, perhaps you could just give us a little bit of a background to the ideas of latitude and multiple sclerosis, and, and really, why did you decide to do this particular study? The idea or the uh, recognition that uh, MS distribution, its frequency is associated with latitude actually goes back anecdotally for uh, a number of decades to the uh, pretty much the beginning of the 1900s. And they found that the frequency of the disease seemed to increase the further away from the equator you went, so the higher the latitude. And uh, this, as I said, was fairly anecdotal for a bit until uh, 1964 when uh, John Kersky did the first systematic review of it, just kind of descriptive epi, but noted a distinct uh, association between the latitude and the MS frequency. And they actually did a statistical analysis for the first time just in 2003, finding again the latitudinal gradient persisted. Uh, but more recently there's been some debate as to uh, whether or not the gradient is there. There's been some suggestion that it was due uh, more to differences in migration and genetic susceptibility. Uh, or that it might actually just be a statistical artifact. Uh, and this in com combination with our own work looking at the associations between vitamin D and UV uh, basically led us to reevaluate the latitudinal gradient uh, using some uh, methodologic improvements of our own. So going from your more than 300 studies, how did you... Um what did you find, and can you give us an overview of the study itself? Uh, well, we found some things that were kind of in sync with uh, other studies. Uh, most particularly, obviously, uh, we found a significant positive association between uh, MS prevalence and latitude. Uh, but in contrast to some other studies like Zavadinov in 2003, we found that rather than uh, age standardizing, uh, attenuating the gradient so that if you take into account the differences in population structure, it weakens. In our study, we actually found that it enhanced it. And also, in contrast to the most recent study uh, before ours by Cox, Henriksen, and Sorensen, 
in contrast uh, to their findings of a relatively weak gradient in Western Europe and North America, we found a very potent one, particularly in the UK, and a, a very strong gradient in Australia and New Zealand, down where we're at. And more particularly, uh, something that we applied uh, was the taking into account the time of the studies. And as you can imagine, uh, both by changes in uh, uh, society, but obviously also uh, changes in methodology. And by taking these into account, you can reduce some of the scatter versus latitude. And we found that when you do take into account the prevalence here, it actually enhanced by the association between latitude and prevalence by about double. With the with your studies looking at the latitude gradients, you found that there were some exceptions. Initially, it appeared Italy and Scandinavia. Do you want to just elaborate a little bit on, on how you got to the bottom of that issue? That's one of the things that uh, uh, was one of the sticking points with the gradient hypothesis, uh, because uh, it's not just a perfect linear effect. You find that around the Mediterranean, particularly in Sardinia and that area uh, around the southern part of Italy, you find much higher prevalences than you'd expect. And also, if you were to assume a simple linear gradient from the equator north, then Scandinavia, the far north, should have the highest rates in the world. But in fact, it actually has relatively low rates. But in fact, we evaluated those regions particularly. And we found uh, that to some extent, it's actually explicable by little idiosyncrasies within the uh, Italian region. Basically, what we're able to do is we're able to uh, take the HLA-DRB1 frequencies, so the, uh, the gene region encoding the uh, major histocompatibility complex, which is a genetic region that's frequently associated very strongly with MS risks. And whereas uh, in the absence of adjustment for HLA in the Italian region, we actually have a very significant inverse gradient. So uh, rather than increasing prevalence with latitude, it's actually decreasing. But when you take into account the HLA distributions, uh, it actually reverses that, so it becomes relatively non-significant, but a positive gradient. Um, now, in Scandinavia, unfortunately, there's much less HLA allele frequency data. However, it's uh, pretty well recognized that uh, as you go further north in Scandinavia, uh, you start to see a greater consumption of, uh, of dietary sources of vitamin D because if you figure our ancestors as they were migrating up to the far north of Scandinavia, uh, if they didn't supplement their vitamin D dietarily, uh, then they would start to get a greater proportion of rickets. So they would have adapted by increasing their uh, consumption of oily fish and reindeer and things of that nature. So trying to put it all together, you've mentioned now the, the spread and latitude, and, and as you mentioned, one of the areas that hadn't been well worked out before with the effects of vitamin D and ultraviolet light. So do you think that vitamin D and, and exposure to ultraviolet light is the key basis for the findings you're seeing in latitude, or, or do you have another explanation? Um, well, it's, it's the most simple one, I suppose, but it's obviously not all there is. It, it, it does make uh, a great deal of sense here in Australia and New Zealand where it's a relatively genetically homogenous population. We do see a very neat latitudinal gradient. You know, Hobart here in Tasmania has the seven times the uh, MS prevalence of tropical Queensland. But when you get into more complex genetic uh, populations uh, like you find in Europe and North America, uh, then obviously uh, genetics are going to start to play a role there. 
whereas overall, just globally, there's a potent latitudinal gradient. When you divide that between uh, European descent versus non-European descent populations, so non-European would be Africans, Asians, non-Semitic uh, Arab populations, the ap uh, latitudinal gradient is just non-existent. Whereas among European descent populations, which would be obviously Europe, a lot of North America, South America, uh, Israel, and uh, Australasia, you see, again, the very potent gradient. So obviously there's uh, some role for genetics to play. As you know, one of the other sort of key theories behind MS is some exposure to an as yet unidentified infectious agent. How um, would that sort of theory equate to some of your findings in, in terms of latitude? Um, again, there's going to be a, a complex interrelation between uh, you know, the very linear uh, versus latitude effect of UV and vitamin D and the more complex things having to do with genetics and migration and also distributions of infectious agents. You know, we get a lot less traffic uh, in Australasia versus, say, Europe and North America. And so uh, the differential effects of uh, uh, how infection transmits in, in large populations may play a greater role in some populations versus others. So in taking your findings forward to the future then, what do you think is the, the real implication of your studies for both uh, ongoing MS research but also from the patient perspective? What it is is it's just uh, another, um, another stone in place in this uh, argument for role for UV and vitamin D in MS uh, etiology but also possibly in clinical course because uh, there's a number of cohort and case control studies, a whole range of epi studies, and now some RCTs looking at vitamin D and related uh, aspects, UV therapy and what have you, for treating MS. And, and basically, latitudinal gradient supports that, and thence people can, you know, have greater confidence in vitamin D and UV in having a role in MS, and a greater confidence to go forward with RCTs for vitamin D as a therapy for MS. Well, Steve, I think it's a fascinating area and it's a, a really an excellent study and uh, that's why it's been chosen as this month's editor's choice and freely downloadable from the JNNP website for the next month. JNNP's Patient Choice this month examines Parkinson's disease, specifically the natural history of the condition. I spoke to co-author Jonathan Evans to hear what they found and how this understanding could benefit patients. With me on the line from the Cambridge Centre for Brain Repair at the University of Cambridge is Dr Jonathan Evans. So hello Jonathan, thanks very much for, for coming on and telling us more about the paper. Well, thanks for having me, delighted to do so. Why specifically do we need to know more about the, the natural history of Parkinson's? As we, as we all know, there are a number of very effective treatments for the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. But what we don't know is whether any of those treatments really have any effect on the underlying uh, disease progression. We know Parkinson's disease is caused by loss of nerve cells within the brain, those dopamine-producing cells in the substantia nigra. And we, uh, it's clear that that process continues regardless of whether patients are taking treatment or not. But what are the clinical effects of this continued loss of nerve cells? And what can we be doing to uh, target that process it's difficult for us to get a handle on what clinical effects we should expect given this uh, continued nerve cell loss because patients are, tr are taking treatment which masks many of the symptoms. Mm. So our question in, in, in designing this uh, study 
was to look at patients followed over a long uh, period of time on treatment to see what symptoms, if any, changed over time and how that could get how that could give us an idea of what the natural history of Parkinson's disease is like and what sort of factors signify progression. Why is it that we don't know very much about how Parkinson's disease develops? Uh, When dopamine-replacing treatments were first developed in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, it was generally regarded that we cracked the Parkinson's disease conundrum. That was going to be the end of the condition in clinical practice. Um, Unfortunately, that hasn't proved to, uh, to be the case for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, as we all know, with prolonged use of Parkinson's medication, side effects such as treatment-induced uh, dyskinesias can develop. We also know that Parkinson's disease is not just a, a movement disorder. Some, pe- some people develop problems with uh, thinking and with memory. Other people have problems with sleep. Problems with mood are also very, very common. There's also a shortage of data of patients with Parkinson's disease followed up over long periods of time. And where those studies have been done, they've generally looked at very selected um, uh, patient groups. So generally, younger patients, patients who were, say, candidates for Parkinson's disease surgery, patients who were followed up in, uh, in big teaching hospitals. And that can, can, uh, can give a very skewed idea. Okay. And I guess that the heterogeneity of the condition makes it difficult to, to get a clear idea of the course as well. Yeah, that's right. There's a huge amount of variation uh, in terms of what different people with the condition look like. Uh, that makes it very difficult on an individual basis to know how the disease is going to progress in a given person. Mm. And that, again, makes it difficult to know how best we should be treating them. When should we, we be starting treatment? When should we, we be increasing treatment? These are questions that we don't have any any good hard evidence to guide what we, what we should be doing in clinical practice. And um, in, in the study, you assessed 132 patients. Um, every 18 months, you assess them clinically and also neuropsychologically. Um, so what did you find in terms of, of their disease progression? So we looked um, at a number of what we regard as key milestones uh, in the natural history of Parkinson's disease. The first thing we looked at was uh, progression to what's referred to in the literature as Hernan-Yar stage 3, defined as the onset of postural instability. Um, We show in the study that this point is associated with a significant drop-off in the quality of life. We go on to say if we had some way of delaying the onset of postural instability, it's likely that that would have a real, a disproportionate impact on how people cope with the disease. We show that uh, in this unselected cohort, the time to uh, Hernan-Yar stage 3 is about three years, which may be um, something of a surprise, but does show, in my opinion, the need to get in early with treatments that really do alter the natural history of the the condition. Mm. We also went on to look at another major milestone, decline in memory and cognitive function. We show that a significant number of people with Parkinson's disease will unfortunately go on to develop uh, memory problems sufficient to, to, to warrant a diagnosis of dementia. Less than half of the patients we followed up had reached that um, end point of developing dementia over the period of the study. Uh, but it, you know, it's obviously a major complicating factor. We can't any longer think of Parkinson's disease uh, as being a condition just defined by its movement symptoms. 
What about prognosis? Were you able to, to pinpoint any indexes that could be useful for, for following patients through the disease? Sure. So, so in the study, we looked at some really simple clinical biomarkers, but also some genetic markers that we think might be helpful in trying to define how different patients follow different disease courses over time. Uh, one thing that you know, is not a new finding, but comes through uh, again and again in, uh, in our study is that patients who are older when they develop the condition seem to progress at a more rapid rate. Patients who are young when they develop Parkinson's disease tend to follow a much slower disease course. The other thing we show is that genetic variation can account for some of the variation that we see in Parkinson's disease. We looked at variation in a gene called tau. Uh, we know that the tau gene has been uh, implicated in other forms of cognitive impairment, memory impairment, and dementia. What we show in this study is that people who carry uh, uh, either one or two copies of the H2 tau gene seem to be relatively protected from the effects of dementia over time. You know, it opens up the possibility that we may be able to look at clinical as well as genetic factors in determining which treatment is best for which patient. Could you give some more examples of how these uh, biomarkers and milestones could, could aid practice or therapy? To the, the treating neurologist or the treating old age physician, it's important to know what the limits of current treatment are. Say, for example, if somebody comes in and they've developed uh, a problem with their posture and with their balance, we know that conventional dopamine replacement treatments do not treat those symptoms well in the majority of people. So that might be a sign that we need to think about other strategies. But more importantly, I think more excitingly, we're seeing a number of trials of both medication and new uh, novel therapies trying to uh, influence the natural progression of Parkinson's disease. Now, separating out simple symptomatic effects from real disease-modifying effects is difficult. But I think it's only through running studies like this, natural history studies looking at treated patients followed over long periods, that we can begin to get an idea of what sort of markers, what sort of endpoints we should be looking at. Fantastic. Well, this all sounds like very good news for patients. So good luck with your, your future research and thanks for, for coming on and telling us about this paper. A pleasure. Many thanks. We'll also be focusing on Parkinson's next month, discussing an exercise intervention to prevent falls in those with the condition. And I'll be looking into the problems of diagnosing conversion disorder. Follow JNMP on Twitter for updates from the journal before then. And take a look at the burgeoning blogs.bmj.com forward slash JNMP if you haven't already. Thanks for listening to this edition and don't forget to join us next time. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.